0: I think what ends up happening is history has led us to kind of two places. Um, at least with American history, we've kind of always come back to the issue of race. Um, it is unintentional. We might be trying to tell one story, and it comes back to that. Um, and then also the environment, because it, play, it looms so large in um, in in human history. It's affected human history in so many ways.
1: Obviously, the climate is a um, hot topic of conversation, and it is often in the news. Um, it's often being talked about, and you know, rightly so, and I think uh, that also um, means that it's on our radar.
2: I'd like to introduce you to two human beings who, lately, have been absolutely lighting up my headphones.
1: Um, okay, I can go first. Uh, my yeah. name is Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm a co-host and co-producer of the podcast Throughline.
2: I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and I'm the other half of that equation. I'm the <laughs> co-host and co-producer of the show, too, and I'm Sam Evans Brown. By the way, there are a lot of stories that we do here at Outside In, not every story, but a lot of them that start with an idea. and we realize before long that if we really want people to understand the idea, we've got to tell them the backstory, the history that informs how we talk about things. And through line, Runndan Ramtin's show does that every episode. A lot of the most popular
0: history shows really are just a couple people or one person talking about a historical event and we wanted to make something that sounded more like a documentary.
2: Yeah, one person talking about a historical event sometimes for three hours straight. So five? <laughs> six?
0: Yeah. Uh, no shade? Or is that some shade? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that we wanted to avoid that. We wanted to make something that was digestible in like 30, 45, or 50 minutes and make it fun to listen to.
2: Am I wrong that you're looking for stories that people haven't heard elsewhere because I I mean occasionally you guys do visit stories that that maybe you've heard something about but a lot of times it's like this is stuff that's totally and maybe I'm just ignorant like I don't know but it's stuff that's totally new to me anyway.
1: No, I mean, I think a lot most of it is new to us as well yeah. um i think the other thing that that we hope to convey with the show is that we're not experts right like we're discovering these stories as we're researching them and putting them together and talking to the people who are experts right and
0: yeah and generally we won't do an episode unless it surprises us as ren mm-hmm. said like we yeah. have to be surprised by it first it's
1: part of the fun of making it yeah
2: know? totally yeah. I can't get enough of this show. I've been raving about it to everyone who will listen, and today we're going to share one of their episodes with you. It's the story of the kind of natural disaster that's usually confined to really bad blockbusters, a volcanic eruption of a scale far beyond anything that's occurred in living memory. But this one, at least, was within written memory. Here's the show.
3: Fire and ice exploding as they meet. The force of nature in full flow. It's like looking inside a giant geological cooking pot.
2: This is as close as we dare go to this huge plume.
1: Back in 2010, a volcano in Iceland disrupted air travel for about six days and caught the attention of the world.
4: And I'm not going to get this name right, but it's E-F-Yarkul. flya. Yakerval.
0: Ayafly Yerkoval. Aya Fetla
1: yukuk. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh nearly.
4: <laughs> it's Aya Fiatla There you go.
1: I'm not gonna try that. He <laughs> <laughs> spent a long time practicing that. <laughs> <laughs> this is that science journalist Alexandra Witsey and her husband, science writer, Jeff Knipe.
4: And the book that uh, we wrote, Alex and I, and we're still married.
5: Is called Island on Fire.
1: They began working on the book kind of by accident when Alex traveled
5: to Iceland to study this volcano. This eruption in 2010 had shut down Europe's air flights with its ash for days at the end. I mean Heathrow was shut down.
4: In the UK it's the first time ever a no-fly zone has been declared leaving up to 600,000 travelers stranded
5: And I was driving around the countryside with a graduate student from the university uh, there in Reykjavik, and he just kind of waved over to the side and said, oh, back there, you know, that's where this other eruption was, this this eruption you've probably never heard of called Lockheed, which was way worse than what we just went through. And I just said, stop, wait, hold on. What is this thing? How come I've never heard of it? And... I came back and started talking to Jeff about what an amazing story this other volcano was.
4: She brought back the seed of this whole thing.
1: It turns out this other volcano, Loki, is the greatest natural disaster Iceland's ever faced. It erupted for eight months in the 1700s, leading to crop failures and famine not only in Iceland, but as far away as France, Egypt, India, and maybe even Japan. So over the next few years, Alex and Jeff dug into the story of Lockheed with one big question in mind.
5: How could one little volcano in one small, remote country cause such global havoc?
0: We survived Y2K, and we even survived 2012. But could we survive a super volcano? These eruptions are enormous.
6: The amount of material erupted from them, huge.
0: The bad news is that the probability of a big one hasn't changed at all.
5: The term the big one, you can only use it at such a big event, you change the nature of society. You said we're long
1: overdue?
0: Long overdue. We're playing Russian roulette with Mother Nature.
1: You're listening to Throughline from NPR.
0: Where we go back in time
1: to understand the present.
0: Hey, I'm Ramtin Arab Louis.
1: I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah.
0: And on this episode, the volcano felt round the world.
1: An American philosopher named Will Durant once said, civilization exists by geological consent, subject to change without notice. Wildfires break out, tornadoes appear, tsunamis strike, usually affecting people on a local level.
0: Meanwhile, scientists devise models of the big ones, the different natural disasters that could have massive ramifications worldwide.
1: Oh my God. The rest of us dream about these big ones in the countless disaster movies we go to, or at least I do.
3: Are you hurt?? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Have you okay.
1: seen this movie? Listen,
0: they the all kind of sound right the same. <laughs> But I hear The Rock. I hear The Rock.
1: It, it is the masterpiece classic San Andreas, featuring oh, okay. The Rock, of course. Yes. Uh, who, by the way, I would definitely trust with my life in this situation. <laughs> That's... You know what okay. I mean? Like, he can yeah. fly a helicopter, lift up buildings. Anyway. To,
0: to each their own. Uh, anyway, in this episode, we're going to step out of the realm of fantasy and show you how an actual big one took the world by surprise and changed life for people across cities, countries, and continents.
5: This is Darlene Mazone from Paducah, Kentucky, and you're listening to Throughline on NPR.
0: If you've watched Game of Thrones, then you probably have a sense of what Iceland looks like.
5: It's an incredible place. So you've got mountains and scarps and rolling landscapes. And every once in a while, you've got a little bit of grass or moss on top of things. Very Game of Thrones, right? So a lot of Game of Thrones was filmed there. Um, Forbidding, desolate, and gorgeous all at the same time. It's barren, it's black, it's volcanic. I mean, this entire island has been built up by volcanic eruptions year after year for the last 20 to 25 million years. So the whole landscape, everything you're looking at, has been built by black rock that came out from the heart of the earth.
0: Iceland sits in the North Atlantic, right on top of the fault line on the ocean floor that divides the North American and Eurasian plates. And as the two plates drift in opposite directions, Iceland is in effect slowly being split apart making the country a geothermal hotspot, where earthquakes and volcanoes are just a fact
5: of life. So Icelanders were really used to volcanoes going off. On average, there's an eruption on the island about once every five years. You grow up with them,
6: yes. And, and I did. By age 15, I had seen three volcanic eruptions. This is volcanologist Thor Thordarsson.
0: I didn't even know that that profession existed when I saw these eruptions. Now, it might sound alarming that volcanoes are going off so frequently, but most of these eruptions aren't too big or destructive. No, 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 absolutely not. Most eruptions are actually fairly small and uh, sort of what we call tourist-friendly. All this volcanic activity has earned Iceland the nickname the land of fire and ice. Thor has spent the last 36 years studying one volcano, Laki. It's taught... In elementary school, you know, history classes, as the greatest disaster that Iceland has faced. But it turns out there wasn't much actual scientific research on Lockheed. So Thor had a lot of work to do. And you can map these things out, you can look at the architecture
6: of these, like the lava flow.
0: He collected ash and lava samples, Esonite. analyzed their chemical makeup, reconstructed the route of the lava flow and how far the ash fell. It's a bit of a detective work. And he began his investigation at Ground Zero, the site of the eruption.
1: The typical volcano you might have in mind is probably a towering, cone-shaped mountain with a big bowl full of bubbling lava in the middle, long, steep slopes on either side, oozing with flowing molten rock.
5: Imagine like your baking soda and vinegar volcano in like middle school or whatever. But Lockheed? doesn't look like that.
6: Absolutely not. Laki <laughs> doesn't look anything like that.
4: If you climb Mount Laki like we did, and you look in both directions, you see these little <laughs> volcanic vents going off to the horizon in both directions.
1: Laki is really just...
6: A 27-kilometer-long crack.
1: A 16-mile crack in the ground might not seem that imposing. But don't let that fool you into thinking it's less powerful.
6: In some ways, it actually might contain more power. See, the reason for cone-shaped volcanoes is because you have magma coming up through one conduit over and over again.
1: Lockheed, on the other hand, doesn't have just one conduit, one release point for the lava and ash. It has many.
6: Over the 27 kilometers, we have about 145 cones, which are just basically lined along this crack.
1: All those vents run deep into the earth, connecting to a chamber of magma, molten rock, that, like a pressure cooker, is waiting to blow. This is the hidden life force of Loki, which couldn't stay hidden forever.
0: In the spring of 1783, the ground began to rumble near Laki.
5: So there was earth shaking, but it wasn't really anything out of the ordinary for Iceland.
6: They wouldn't see much, they would just
0: feel the earthquakes.
5: You would have just thought you were living with the normal geological unrest.
0: So people more or less just carried on with their lives.
5: If you can imagine what things would have been like in the 1780s in Iceland, so first you're in a very remote country. It's pretty much known for fishing and that's about it. Uh, it was ruled by Denmark at the time. So it's very isolated, very rural.
0: But as the days went by, the earthquakes became more and more frequent. A priest in a nearby town named Jon Steingrimsson liked to keep tabs on this seismic activity, documenting what he saw and heard. He was very devout, but he was also, um,
4: had a scientific bent to him. Sunday services
0: were always, you know, his favorite part of the week, obviously. And like clockwork, every Sunday, Yon would ride his horse from home to church to deliver mass.
4: Sunday, June 8th, 1783.
5: He would have been getting ready for his sermon.
4: And he stepped out of his little farmhouse to mount his horse to ride five kilometers or so to the church. But he happened to look behind him toward the north, and when he did...
5: He would have seen this cloud rising above the hills to the north.
4: This enormous cloud, dark cloud bearing down on the village.
5: It would have looked like... Maybe if a fire had gone off, you think about those big plumes of wildfire, you know, billowing up.
6: It darkened the area, so basically you lost all sunlight. So it was completely
4: dark. People, you know, caught outdoors, had to grope their way home in the blackness. There soon followed a blizzard of uh, powdery fluff, which is ash, settling thick on the ground like coal ash.
5: would have started talking to everybody in the village when they got together, like what is going on, what is happening. It's not like this was the first time they'd seen an ash cloud
1: or felt the tremors of an eruption. But something about this ash seemed different.
6: There was so much acid in the ash cloud that it actually burned holes in the leaves of the trees. And the grass withered almost instantaneously.
4: It must have just been like night and day. He steps out of his house on Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day. turns around and hell is bearing down on him as fast as possible.
1: Jon wrote that he thought this might be the end of the world.
3: The earth trembled incessantly. How terrible it was to see such signs of an angry God. Now it was time to confess to the Lord.
1: By the afternoon, the clouds seemed to lift, and a calm descended over the town. Yon held his church services under a clear sky. He thought the worst had passed. But that night, the earthquakes returned, and with them, the ash. So a group of farmers decided to climb a nearby mountain
5: to see if they could see where the eruption was coming from.
1: And when they arrived, they were met with a terrifying sight.
3: First the ground swelled up with tremendous howling, and suddenly a cry shattered it into pieces and expulsing the Earth's gut, like an animal tearing apart its prey.
5: If you can think about an enormous gash just opening up and starting to bleed molten rock out. So basically that magma had broken through the Earth and you would have seen it starting to come up in these big billowing clouds of ash and these big curtains of fire fire fountains, they call them, spouting up into the air. If you'd been standing there, it would have been like seeing an entire curtain of flaming material just above your head and dribbling down around you. And as it fell onto the ground, you would have seen it sort of cool and become this dark, gooey, flowing lava that would have started coursing down the hill. And out of that, it was just constantly pumping this black, fiery stuff and it built up and built up on the landscape
0: When we come back Loki's lava and ash spread across Iceland and beyond
3: This past week, and the two prior to it, more poison fell from the sky than words can describe. Ash, volcanic hairs, rain full of sulfur, all of it mixed with sand.
1: As Loki continued to erupt, Jon Steingrimson continued to write down what he saw. Lava spewed, and the ash fell. Day after day.
3: All water went tepid and light blue in color, and gravel slides turned gray.
1: More lava, more ash, week after week.
3: All the Earth's plants burned, withered, and turned gray one after another as the fire increased and neared the settlements.
5: There was so much lava coming out of this eruption that it was enough to bury all of Manhattan deeper than Trump Tower is tall. So that's a lot of lava. As the lava traveled across
1: the countryside, it destroyed farms and villages in its path.
5: So you can imagine if you're a farmer and your farm just happens to be downslope from where this enormous gash opened up in the landscape. Well, you're kind of screwed because all that lava is coming towards you. So the most immediate impact was the folks who lived right there and they had to flee. They had to pack up and take what they could and get out as fast as they could. Before long, the lava was at Yon's doorstep,
1: approaching his village. So he
4: had everybody assembled in the church.
1: And he gave a sermon. It
4: was just now called the Fire Mass and um, was praying for divine intervention.
3: Let us pray to God in correct piety that He and His grace would not want to destroy us in haste. Each and every one pray without fear. Each and every one be ready to die if it pleases Him.
4: The lava came within about three kilometers of the church, which sounds, you know, like pretty far away, but then you don't know where that lava is going. And it, uh, it stopped. It stopped because mainly it was a, a confluence of a couple of tributaries that fed into the Skafta River and it had rained and this uh, cooled the flowing lava and the lava mounded up as in, in kind of a dam. And um, you can still see that to, to this day, you can walk up to it. So the village was spared and Steingremsen became somewhat of a uh, famous person. <laughs> People credited his fire mass I think he knew
6: exactly what he was doing. I've looked at the, the location where the church was and where the lava was coming. He realized that the, that lava was not going any further. And that's why he called the sermon. He gets people in, the church, everyone goes and prays and, and they come out, and the lava had stopped. He had actually, you know, given the people hope again.
0: And I, I think that was very deliberate. But the lava wasn't actually the biggest threat, because what was causing more trouble were the poisonous gases spewing from Laki. This was uh,
4: a very sulfur and fluorine rich eruption. So they would have been smelling sulfur and they'd been tasting it and a rather bitter scent and taste to the air. And there was no escaping it. It polluted everything. The ground was salted in uh, fluorine, which is a highly toxic substance. In many areas, the sheep
6: actually got fluorine poisoning and died as a consequence of that later on. Some of them within three days, but for most of them, it took a bit longer time.
0: Jon recounted how livestock were growing
3: ill and dying. The snouts, nostrils, and feet of livestock grazing or walking on the grass turned bright yellow and raw. He was a superstitious man, and
0: all this struck him as a bad sign of things to come.
4: I read almost everything he's written, and uh, I feel like i <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm channeling him. He, he, he subscribed to, that there were spirits and hidden folk uh, in the ground, which a lot of Icelanders some of them to, the, to this day believe,
0: and he believed in signs importance, and that kind of thing. It appears that some people started dying from fluorine poisoning, likely from drinking water or eating food laced with fluorine. Fluorine poisoning at at that level is horrific.
4: People would get mouth sores, their gums would swell and bleed, their teeth would fall out. Uh, Inside, uh, there were gastric problems, and um, their tongues sometimes would fall out.
0: they were running out of options meat was off limits because it would poison them and crops were no longer growing in the poisoned grass so they had to resort to extreme measures
5: it's called the mist hardships there's stories of people you know boiling and trying to eat their shoe leather and just anything they can put in their mouths because they haven't been able to grow crops so there was mass starvation all across iceland and these these villages We're just burying, you know, person after person who had lived there.
1: Icelanders were trapped in a desperate situation with nowhere to go.
6: It's an island and it's isolated. It's the middle of the North Atlantic. You don't go anywhere. You might be able to relocate within the country, but then...
1: But then there were no effective mechanisms to actually help refugees leaving areas that were damaged.
6: So people just basically put down the feet and stayed put, and just fought it out.
1: The sun, shorn of his beams, appears through the haze like the full moon. Meanwhile, in Western Europe, people were beginning to see something strange. They wrote of a misty haze rolling in without explanation.
0: A fog of a singular kind appeared here, such that it had not been observed by any previous students of nature.
1: We could look at the sun without getting blinded two hours
6: before sunset as it was then red, as if we were seeing it through smoked glass.
5: The country people began to look with superstitious awe at the red luring aspect.
1: The dark, bitter haze arrived in the late spring and stayed. An unwelcome visitor, there from morning through the night, night after night. A sulfurous odor, very readily perceived by the senses, crawling through everything, even closed houses. It spread all across Europe, to the UK, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Germany. One English poet named William Cowper wrote, Some declare that the sun neither rises nor sets where he did, and assert with great confidence that the day of judgment is at hand.
6: A lot of people thought this was the end of the world.
1: In northern France, the people of one town forced their priest out of bed in the middle of the night so he could perform an exorcism
5: on the fog. His parishioners were so freaked out about this nasty fog that was lingering day after day. It almost seemed like something cursed, and, and people didn't know what to make of it. At first, this was just
1: an abstract fear. I mean, a lingering dark fog that overtakes everything is a pretty ominous thing, but soon this fog began causing very real problems, as it had in Iceland. People noticed that their cattle were becoming sick, their crops were no longer growing, and their loved ones were finding it harder to breathe.
0: Many whom I've left in my parish well are dead, and many dying. This fever rages wherever I have been.
1: Such multitudes are indisposed by fever in this country that farmers have with difficulty gathered in their harvest. The laborers having been almost every day carried out of the field, incapable of work, and many die.
0: For the average person in Europe, this was a complete mystery. They had no idea a volcano had gone off on a small island thousands of miles away, and that what they were experiencing was a consequence of that. After all, communication between different countries was limited. But some people in the scientific community had their suspicions.
5: Independently, there were a couple different scientists who came up with the idea that maybe this was from a volcano, maybe this weird, strange fog was from a volcano. Most famously, at least um, among Western scientists, was Benjamin Franklin.
4: The cause of this universal fog is not yet ascertained.
5: He was living in Paris at the time because he was helping hammer out the uh, the treaty between the U.S. and Britain, sort of in the post-revolutionary war era, and he was seeing this strange fog.
4: Being Benjamin Franklin, he was going to try and find out what was causing this interesting change in the weather. He was always interested
0: in the weather. In one of these letters he wrote, he thought it might be Hecla. Hecla was another volcano in Iceland that had erupted nearly two decades earlier.
4: Whether it was the vast quantity of smoke long continuing to issue during the summer from Hekla in Iceland. And that other volcano which arose out of the sea near that island, which smoke might be spread by various winds over the northern part of the world, is yet
0: uncertain. Though he didn't guess the exact volcano, he was on to something. Basically, as the magma from Laki boiled, it generated a lot of sulfur dioxide, or SO2, which is a toxic gas. Lockheed then propelled the gas and ash up into the sky, into the atmosphere, and maybe even the stratosphere. And this ash cloud was pushed eastward on a jet stream. Away from the volcano and across
6: lands further away.
4: A long-term pollution event, that's what I call it. It just kept belching gas into the atmosphere.
0: The combination of the amount of ash and the strength of the jet stream meant that the haze covered most of the northern hemisphere from
6: about the Mediterranean and all the way to the pole,
0: and then you go all the way around. So Europe was just the first stop as the haze traveled east. And as the eruption continued, countries around the world began experiencing sudden weather changes.
1: When we come back, Lockheed disrupts life throughout the Northern Hemisphere. Angelo Acevedo from Hollister, California, and you're listening to Throughline from NPR
0: in the summer, the haze from Lockheed began to be seen far beyond Europe.